Friends, the Lord be with you as always. It's a gift to be together to open up God's word as we launch into the season of Lent. And in the world of college students, it's hard to believe we are closing in on spring break. And so in just under two weeks, I, along with 20 other Hope College students, will pile into two 12-passenger vans to embark on a week-long spring break missions trip just outside of Orlando. How awesome is that? It's such a gift to partner with Nancy Smith, who directs these trips, along with Dave Cool, who will serve as our ministry liaison down in Orlando. And while I can't wait for spring break just a few weeks away, I am also eager to get down to business this morning. And we're back in John's gospel as Jonathan has already noted, still on the way with Jesus. So hear the word of the Lord from John chapter 9, and I'll start at verse 1. As he, that is Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be revealed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is the day, for night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with his saliva and he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him go wash at the pool of Siloam which means scent and so he went and washed and came back seeing now the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying was this not the man who used to sit and beg some said it is he Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? And he said, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. And I went and I washed and I received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. And so they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was the Sabbath when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received sight. And he said, he put the mud on my eyes, I washed, and I see. And so some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. And others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. And so again, they asked the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. Now, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and that his eyes were opened until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and said to them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? 
And his parents answered, we know this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. Now his parents said this because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, they were to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had received his sight and said to him, give glory to God, we know that this man is a sinner. And he answered, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. But one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. So they again said to him, How were your eyes opened? What did he do to you? And he answered them, I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken through Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And the man answered, why, this is a marvelous thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard of anyone opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, you were born in utter sin, and you would teach us, and they cast him out. Now Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered Jesus, and who is he, sir, that I might believe in him? And Jesus said, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And the man answered, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And Jesus said, for judgment, I have come into the world that those who do not see may see. And those who see may become blind. Now, some of the Pharisees were near when he said these things. And having heard him, asked him, are we then also blind? And Jesus said, if you were blind you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What do you make of that story? There is so much going on, a lot to unpack in the short time we have, so let's get right into it. There are three things in particular I'd love to explore in the short time we have together. And they are first, the sign that Jesus performs, second, the argument that ensues, and third, the wager with everything at stake. That's the ground I'd love to, love to cover with you. So first, the sign, the six of seven signs as St. John unpacks his theology in narrative form, the light that shines in the darkness, and the darkness could not overcome it. Now, before Jesus performs the sign, I wonder if you noticed 
that he gets caught up in what we might call a teaching moment with his disciples. They ask him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? It's the age-old question of sin and suffering attempting to make sense of a fallen world and its consequences. It's one of the human heart's knee-jerk reactions to the problem of pain. Who sinned? Who's at fault here? Where lies the blame? And at this point, the disciples basically turn to what the other major worldviews and religions affirm, where righteousness is rewarded and wickedness is punished with varying degrees of cause and effect. But here Jesus is quick to counter the direct link, cause and effect, between sin and suffering. He says, it was not that this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the work of God might be revealed in him. Last week, I had the great opportunity to gather with some other Young Life Church partners at Timberwolf Camp, an amazing property up north in the Lake City area that I'm sure that many of you have been to before. And one of the conversations we had dealt with all that students face today the unceasing pressure to perform, the constant overload of information in the age of the screen, and all the cultural gravity pulling students to embrace authentic identity or the liberated self in what Eugene Peterson called the replacement trinity, one's holy needs, holy wants, and holy feelings. It's just the script that they've been given. And like Jesus' disciples, we were all looking for answers, looking for just enough light for the next step or so. So while the disciples might ask the wrong question, at least they look to Jesus, the true light that enlightens everything. And as such, Jesus at once corrects their false assumptions about sin and suffering and makes clear as day that he intends to reveal the truth. The sixth sign, therefore, aligns with the second of seven I am statements. Jesus is the light of the world. He reveals the truth of who God is and what God's up to in the world, which is, in a word, salvation. It's why the psalmist said, the Lord is my light and my salvation, and that I shall look uh, that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Jesus Christ is the salvation the psalmist looked for and what we all long for. He makes manifest the heart of God and the will of the Father, what he's been working out since the very beginning. In uh, God, in all wisdom and insight, made known the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to gather together all things in him. That's the Apostle Paul writing to the Ephesians. And the man called Jesus makes it personal and real time for real people. He did it then, and he's doing it still. The sixth sign reveals salvation, healing, cleansing, new creation. So I wonder if you notice here that Jesus, the word made 
flesh uses the very stuff of the earth, the mud, the clay of the earth that the eternal word used with the Father and the Spirit at the creation of the world in Genesis. And here Jesus inaugurates new creation. He spat on the ground and made mud with his saliva. And then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And he went and washed and came back seeing. But as it turns out, the claim that salvation comes through the man called Jesus is not without contention, taking us to our second point. Now, something to know about me is that I am all for a good old-fashioned argument, whether it's politics or theology or sports, you name it, and I'm up for it. It partially explains why I studied political science and philosophy as an undergrad. It basically gave free reign and full permission to just hash it out with my peers and classmates. It seemed like a pretty good deal. So good arguments in a sphere of convicted civility can actually be quite clarifying. They reveal our own flaws and blind spots. They sharpen our reasoning and make way for genuine discovery of the truth. And they can even be the conditions from which friendships are formed on more than one occasion. My fiercest interlocutors have, in the end, become friends, and that's been a great gift. I've also found that arguments can go quickly awry if all the answers are decided ahead of time. Have you ever been there in conversation? If either side neglects the intellectual humility that is proper to any argument or conversation. In Leslie Newbigin's little book, Truth to Tell, he says, the effort to know the truth involves struggle, groping, feeling one's way. We search for clues, and if they are to be useful, we must believe in them, at least provisionally. Personal commitment and faith and personal judgment about evidence are required at every stage. Every worldview, says Newbigin, a combination of faith and facts. Even the most dogmatic of secular atheists, therefore, depends on a leap of faith alongside whatever the evidence bears out. And if, you're like, if you like arguments like me, we've got a real whopper here as the man that Jesus has just healed goes head-to-head -head with the Pharisees, with a host of others along for the ride. We've got the disciples and the neighbors and even the blind man's parents get pulled into the debate. There's a lot on the table, the blind man's encounter with Jesus, the disbelief of the neighbors and his relatives and the skepticism of the religious leaders and all of the power dynamics at play in that. So as the argument unfolds, the identity of Jesus comes front and center. Who is he? A prophet? Is he a sinner? He doesn't keep the Sabbath, doesn't fit our existing categories this isn't the first time Jesus poses a challenge, and it certainly will not be the last. 
And ultimately, and there's much more that we could say if we went point by point through the argument, but ultimately, the blind man's testimony to the truth confronts and exposes the Pharisee's position. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Now, for someone who loves a good argument, I find the rebuttal of the religious leaders pretty uninspiring. You were born in utter sin, and you would teach us? So much for a convicted civility, the Pharisees totally lose their cool, cut the conversation short, and cast the man out. As my old professor Jack Muller taught me, the Pharisees commit a first-order logical fallacy. This is called an ad hominem. They basically attack their opponent's personal character as if that validated their own claims. But it goes deeper than faulty logic or bad form. It's that those who, insi- those who insist on saying, we know, apart from the light of Jesus, are driven away from the truth. And this is the terrible reality of judgment. Because even though the light is healing light, its inevitable effect is to compel those who love the darkness to seek refuge in still deeper darkness. So the argument ends abruptly. The Pharisees cast the man out of the synagogue. They have created a closed world, like a sealed room into which no light and no fresh air can come in from the outside. This is where Jesus comes back on the scene. He tracks down the man cast out, the man he just healed, and says to him, do you believe in the Son of Man? And this brings us to our third point, what Pascal called the wager. Dorothy Sayers, a great friend of C.S. Lewis and an honorary inkling, says it like this, the Christian story is the most exciting drama that ever staggered the imagination of man. And the plot pivots upon a single character, and the whole action is the answer to a single central problem. What do you make of Jesus Christ? It's the question we all have to reckon with at one point or another. And if you don't mind me saying, today is as good a day as any. The Pharisees have put their flag in the ground. They are disciples of Moses. And the blind man that Jesus has just healed has given his chance to, Lord, I believe. Pascal called it the wager, Kierkegaard, the leap of faith. Do you believe in the Son of Man? But this is only one aspect of the wager, one vantage point where when faced with the truth, We either dive in or we don't. There's another side to this, and this, in the end, makes all the difference, and that is the leap of grace. A final word from Newbegin. The freedom of the Christian is to say simply, I know whom I have believed. We believe in order to understand, and our struggle to understand is a response to grace. Real understanding becomes possible not by seeking certitude apart from grace, 
but by accepting the calling to seek understanding while knowing that full understanding will be a gift of grace beyond the horizon of our own searching. In Christ, God makes the leap of grace utterly undeserved, unwed to any scheme of human merit beyond the horizon of our own knowledge and our own searching. Which is really just another way of saying was it what is at the heart of the gospel, that the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And here at the table, God again makes the leap of grace as Jesus Christ meets us here as host and offers to us his body and his blood. If you believe in Jesus Christ and acknowledge him as Savior, you are welcome to partake in this way. If you're not at that place in life or in faith, this is not meant to be a moment of unnecessary pressure. You're welcome to consider the things that you've heard this morning. The body of Christ given for you and the blood of Christ shed for you.